We hear a lot of perspectives on the Mankind Podcast. Inclusion of a guest is not an endorsement of their views, and the opinions expressed here do not always represent the mission or values of the Mankind Project USA. Looks like the rain has gone. Hey everybody, it's Boysen Hodgson with the Mankind Podcast. Can we use spiritual awareness to dismantle racism? Or put another way, more broadly maybe, how can we tap into our own sacred intelligence to empower change in the world? What on earth is sacred intelligence? This week on the podcast, I'm with Reverend Dr. Terlin Curry Avery, the Reverend Dr. TLC. And regardless of your belief or non-belief, this podcast might help you connect to a deeper sense of who you are as a motivated, passionate advocate for change in all kinds of environments. What's it like to be a black woman pastor and a psychologist in the mostly white Presbyterian church in Springfield, Massachusetts? What kinds of transformations are possible with someone like that. When we get willing together to set aside old ways of seeing and hearing the world and focus as a group collectively on living from sacred purpose. What I love about being with Dr. Reverend TLC is the speed with which we are able to move with ease from ideas and philosophies to practical actions and stories, we can take action to condition ourselves into new ways of thinking and being together. There are three pillars in Reverend Dr. TLC's sacred intelligence, sacred motive, selfish mindset, and shared movement. In this podcast, we dive into the journey of learning about sacred intelligence and bring it forward into the world. There are ways to make a difference. You can make a difference. Hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody, it's Boys and Hodgson. Welcome back to the Mankind Podcast, where we are setting out to prove that there is more than one way of being a man. And I think we're doing pretty fine job of that. Today, I am thrilled to introduce a new friend and somebody that I've started learning from recently as a result of a combination, a combination of serendipitous connections from the long past. So I'm with Terlin L. Curry Avery, Reverend Dr. TLC. So Terlin, first, hi, say hello to the folks. Hello, hello, hello. Terilyn and I met because my old friend Thomas Griggs was in a conversation with Dr. TLC and decided that this would be a good connection to make because Reverend Dr. TLC has been a, a, the reverend at a local Presbyterian church here where I live in Western Massachusetts. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Reverend Dr. TLC is the creator of Pastology, 
which we'll talk a little bit about, the cutting-edge field that focuses on the synergy between pastoring and psychology. So she holds a PhD from Hofstra University and a Master's of Divinity from Yale University. We are going to cross back and forth between uh, the sacred and the academic, I think, in our conversation here. And as a pastologist, a licensed psychologist, and an ordained minister, she is a transformational leader, coach, speaker, and author. Reverend Dr. TLC has a unique approach to healing, transformation, and manifestation. She places the emphasis on the journey towards sacred intelligence. We're going to talk a lot about that today. The ability to tap into one's internal source in order to move toward intelligent choices. Reverend Dr. TLC has a long history of working with institutions, organizations, and communities to bridge the racial divide and to promote racial equity. She's the host of the Dismantle Racism radio program, which is on talkradio.nyc, and she's the author of Dismantling Racism, Healing Separation from the Inside Out, and Sacred Intelligence, the Essence of Sacred, Selfish, and Shared Relationships. Reverend Dr. TLC, as I said, is also the pastor of Martin Luther King Jr. Community Presbyterian Church here in Springfield, Mass. That was a big mouthful. I'm so happy to be with you and share the space. I'm so happy to be here, actually. I, I um, love any opportunity I can get to help folks understand how to dismantle racism. And of course, it's always good to talk to you because we get into some very deep conversations. And so I appreciate being here. Thank you. So we are going to go, first of all, like, how does Dr. Reverend Dr. TLC come to exist? How did you get to be a pastologist? I was going to say, well, how did I come to exist? That's a whole different. Well, that may be a different. But, um, yeah. So God has a sense of humor. That's how I came to exist uh, here, here. as a pastologist, because I was moving along the world just fine being a psychologist. And uh, I, I thought that I was doing a lot of good work. You know, I was working with underserved populations my heart's desire. Mm. Um, and I was still doing work on dismantling racism. And then I received this calling to do ministry. And I went to divinity school, still all the way fighting. I'm not going to be a pastor of a church. I'm going to do a women's ministry. Who wants to, who, who it's crazy. It's insane. Who wants to be a pastor of a church? Mm. And I, I, Fought that tooth and nail, but then I ended up getting ordained as a pastor and um, really thought that I would focus more on the wounds of religion because mm. I have a passion for that. And in my private practice, I started seeing so many people who were wounded by religion, mm. so many people. And really, to tell you the truth, that became my focus. And... Um, so, so to answer your question about that, I don't want to drop too far ahead, but um, it really is because I wanted to merge the psychology and the spiritual, two things that I deeply, deeply love. And, um, you know, I believe 
that merging those two names clearly defines who I am, a pastologist. It's a it's a phrase that I coined, by the way, in my art. So I, yes. it's it's not something that anybody people will say, well, what the heck is that? It's a phrase I came up with. The creator, the originator, the one and only. Right. Yes. yes. The inimitable inimitable. I almost said it right the first time. <laughs> so one of the things that you and I and I'm I'm actually it's a fascinating conversation to be into how folks get wounded by the church mm. and maybe we'll do that conversation at a different time. So one of the things that connected when Thomas put us together and I looked you up, I learned a story that will connect very well to dismantling racism. So the Martin Luther King Jr. Presbyterian church here mm. in Springfield, Massachusetts over mm. by Mason square Mm-hmm. which is a beautiful old craft arts and crafts church building, gorgeous building was uh, ar- burned mm. by a white supremacist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And looking out and looking around, like maybe we have a problem with white supremacy in this country. Mm-hmm. Maybe we have a problem with racism in this country. Maybe mm-hmm. we have, and your approach to how we look at racism and work with racism, I think is really comes from a very different angle. So let's go into how do we look at racism from the lens, through the lens of the sacred and sacred intelligence, which mm-hmm. is what you talk about. Mm-hmm. So to begin with, um, you know, we talked about this term pastologist being the combination yeah. of psychology and ministry. And that's what sacred intelligence is, is really being able to look at that sacred part of us, that divine wisdom part of us. And then to also think about who we are, not just as a spiritual being, but as a, a human being and in the intellect as well. And so in turn, and who we show up as in this world. So our sacred intelligence is then our ability to go inward, to listen to that sacred part of us that will allow us to make choices that are not only going to manifest our greatness, but manifest the greatness of others. So I think that's really important to say because your divine wisdom will never tell you to do anything that's going to hurt someone else. It just won't. Your divine wisdom will tell you what you need to do in terms of uh, not allowing anyone to hurt you, you not hurting anyone else, and not allowing anyone else to hurt you. And I think that's really important. And so the work that I do on sacred intelligence is beyond race. I do it no matter who I'm working with. Those three things are very important for you to keep in mind because it helps you to know who you are and how we are connected with other folks. So as it relates to racism, sacred intelligence then becomes, there there are three pillars that I talk about in the book, and I know we'll get into them a little bit more deeply, but I talk about this idea of what is your, your sacred motive, right? Because with sacred intelligence, there are three types of relationships I think we have. The one we 
we have with our sacred source, whatever that is, the one we, ha we have with ourselves and the one we have with other people. So in the book, I talk first and foremost about why do you even want to dismantle racism? Mm -hmm. What is your sacred motive? Because for me, your motive to dismantle racism has to be something much bigger than yourself. It can't be because this is a good thing for your company to do, right? We saw people giving out so much money and posting, oh, we have a black CEO or we have a black head of DEI or whatever the case may be, but are they able to do what they need to do in that company in order to bring about racial diversity? Because race is the one thing we don't want to talk about, right? We'll talk about all the other diversities. Whether we agree with them or not, we're more comfortable. And so for me, I believe it's very important to know why you do the work that you do, just like in the Mankind Project. Mm -hmm. You know why you do this work. You are committed to doing this work. Becomes, it comes from a place within, right? Yeah. So the question that I ask people to begin this process of, the sacred intelligence journey of faith is what I call it. It's mm. what's your motive. So I'd invite your listeners to think about what's your motive for doing this? Because if you're going to dismantle racism, it takes a lot more than saying black lives matter, you know, rah, rah, rah. No, it takes a lot. It takes a lot more. From a very deep internal place right from that sacred place and that's when you and i were talking about the book just a few minutes ago you were saying you know what was the book you were going to write how was this going to come about and you pointed out to me as as you look through the books like these are all sermons this is this is all stuff that you've preached from the pulpit coming from that sacred place that motivation that that depth yeah I'm giving you a moment. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell another story and this is from, from the book. Um, one of the early stories in the book of one of your, I, I assume one of your early placements as a reverend was as an interim reverend for a church with a largely white congregation. And, uh, I want let, tell us a story about that because I think that starts to get it, you know, how hard the conversation is. So <clears throat> I want to just say to your audience, if they hear me and it sounds like I have something in my mouth, <laughs> it's because I have a cough drop in cough my drop. mouth. So I'm going to be transparent here. Please. I'm getting over a, a, a little of being a little um, under the weather. So just so that we can, that's the part of life, right? Yes. But, <clears throat> you know, boys, and you said that the stories in the, in the book come from a sacred place, and they do. So I, God, in God's infinite wisdom, I think God has a sense of humor. Sense of humor. <laughs> That's right. I, I am Presbyterian, and it's a predominantly white yeah. denomination. And I have been Presbyterian all my life. So mm. when I came down to this church needing an interim pastor in the part of the country we live in, there are not that many diverse churches. 
And I had a relationship with the church. I became their pastor. But here's an interesting place to be, boys, and to be a black woman in a predominantly white church. And then you have to preach not only the gospel, right, as we as people understand it to be. Yes. Not necessarily as it is, but as people think they understand it to be. And I was preaching during a time where week after week, black men were being shot and killed by the police. It just, I mean, we have to admit that during President Obama's administration, it seemed like we constantly heard Mm. about black men being shot and women, but you know, we don't hear about what happens to women as much. Yes. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So I found myself in this curious place. How do I help the people that I serve understand what racism is like in this country? And initially I thought that I would go in and fly under the radar. Mm. And I remember preaching a sermon just after I got there. It was just after DOMA where, you know, the rights of, LGBTQIA folks was to marry. Mm-hmm. And also, again, people were getting killed. And so I can remember I preached a sermon for the 4th of July. And I said, you know, not all people feel equal in this country. And I said, until such and such time, LGBT folks didn't feel equal, blah, blah, blah. So my daughter says to me, she was a teenager at the time, and she said, Mom, I thought you were going to fly under the radar. I said, yeah, it's kind of hard to do that. But I didn't preach about race every week, but I I found the places where I could. But then there, there came a time where I just, there was no way to not preach about race. Mm-hmm. I would not have been true to myself. Mm-hmm. And I would not have served my ancestors or my family well or my community well or the people that I served. But here was the response of, I remember one Sunday preaching after, I think this was two people were killed that week, two black men were killed that week. And it might have been when the five officers were also shot Mm. in Texas. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. So I did more than preach about it. I I sent a letter out to the church. I posted it on Facebook. Got attention because then people wanted me to come and speak in other places. But I had one parishioner to say to me, well, it's okay for you to talk about race, but I don't think Sunday morning is the place for you to do it. What? If we are here proclaiming, and I'm just talking about Christian folks. I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about anybody else. But if you are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and you don't want to talk about race with a within a church where you're supposed to be where Jesus said I have come to set the captive free. Do you understand the concept of that? But you want to come to church and you don't want to talk about race? It's incredulous. And so for any of your parishioners, uh, parishioners, any of your listeners out yeah. there, like understand what you're saying. 
Are you living up to your values? And so in my book, when I talk about sacred motives, I'm not talking about Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism. I'm not talking about a religion. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about what, what are your values and what's your deeper connection with sacred, whether that sacred is trees, the, mm -hmm. the, um, the trees and creation and all of that. What is your connection with even other people? It has to be deeper because I'm going to tell you, do I get tired of talking about race? Yes. Do I get tired of racism in the country? Yes. Do I get tired of having to think about if I want to go walk? Is it safe for me to go walk? Mm -hmm. But I live it. And so I encourage your listeners, particularly white listeners, because much of the book is written really for white yes. folks. I say that in here. In fact, for sure. reviewers were like, she's, and she's a white woman. She said, Terrilyn, you need to say white folks because that's who you're talking about. <laughs> like you're talking about white folks. And I said, yes, I know. You know, so the issue for me is being consistent with who you say you are and then understanding what is that motive for you? It cannot be just because, you know, you want to be the savior of mm -hmm. black and brown folks. It can't be throwing just a little money. Yeah, I'll take your money. No, don't don't ever get me wrong. I'll take the money. Mm. But I want it to be about changing the structure. I know I sound like I'm preaching, but I, 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 this is something I'm very passionate about, honestly. Well, wait, why did I invite you onto the program if you weren't going to preach? That was kind of the part of the point. Oh, right, 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 right. So. Is, is the intersection, right? It, it, was the, it is the intersection in the book. It's the intersection in our conversation between psychology and the sacred that most fascinates me about this. And connecting, dismantling racism, connecting this, this struggle, this conversation to something that is spiritual that it mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. a spiritual endeavor mm -hmm. and one of the bullets that you on uh, page 21 in the book for all of you who go and buy the book after this conversation sacred motive talks about keeping you focused and grounded helping you center on your purpose guiding mm -hmm. your actions and i underlined repeatedly calling you to discernment. Mm. And I think that's kind of what you're pointing at is like, what are the, why do I go to church? Yeah. Why am I doing what I'm doing right now? Mm -hmm. Is this to make me feel better? Is this to make me feel comfortable? Is this to make me, is this to take me away from the world? Is this to, to or am I here for something bigger? Right. And I think and, that's and a I discernment. Clear, yeah. Again, it isn't, this book is certainly, it's not a book written to proselytize. So I right. want people, it's not. even though I'm talking about faith, right? it's about faith in something bigger than yourself. Yeah. And then faith in yourself. And so the sacred intelligence piece, the sacred motive piece calls you to continually go inward so that you can discern what your outward movement should be. Beautiful. Let's move into the second part. So self-ish... Selfish. How can we be selfish when we're talking about dismantling racism? Where, what do you mean by that in this context? Mm. So I believe that sacred intelligence is the essence of our sacred, selfish and shared relationships. 
which happens to also be the title of my first book. The selfish piece is about what is the work that you have to do? What is the work that I have to do in order to dismantle racism or to manifest your greatness or whatever it is? The selfish piece is about taking enough time to explore who you are and how you show up in the world. It's also just, you know, in other contexts, it's about just, it really is about taking time to work on you, Mm -hmm. taking time for you, because all too often we want to point the finger at what other people are doing, even Mm -hmm. if it's uh, why we can't keep a job or if it's something like getting angry when you say yes to doing something and you really want to say no, the selfish piece would be like, no, I need this time for me. And so I use selfish in a provocative way, Mm -hmm. but in a positive way. So in the book, the selfish is all about looking at yourself and figuring out what you need to do to end racism. Self, so connected to self-awareness, connected to projections, connected to like all of that other, all the stuff that I want to disown. And this is, this is all MKP language, right? All of my shadow stuff that I don't want to take responsibility for. Mm -hmm. All of these are part of that selfish Mm -hmm. aspect. Yeah. Yeah. And with me, The selfish mindset is around the belief that you can do something to end racism. All too often, people will say, well, what can I do? Or racism isn't going to ever end in my lifetime. It sure won't with a mindset like that. Mm. But if you train yourself to have a different mindset, you you can be a part of ending racism. And even if you do what you can in your own corner of the world, just like with the Mankind Project, right? Mm -hmm. You are helping to change the mindset of men one at a time. And what would happen if you were to say, we're never going to be able to change men. They're going to always think blah, 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 blah. Right? Keep doing what we do. Keep getting what we get. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So chain. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like that. I like the, the cross reference in there. Yeah. So, you know, something that we didn't, that we didn't do is set very pragmatically at the beginning of this conversation to talk about the, what is the, what of racism that we're talking about and neither of us defined it. We both kind of jumped into the conversation <laughs> with an, you know, what I assume to be a shared understanding Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you define racism? Well, I'm glad you asked because in the back of the book, I provide a glossary of terms for people. <laughs> and so <laughs> I define it as well as so many other people as ideas, beliefs, behaviors, systems, or practices that intentionally mm-hmm. or unintentionally view people of color as inferior to white people. So just in case, let me give you an example of how subtle it is. I once at this particular church that I was the pastor of, before I became the pastor, I actually attended there for some years prior to that. 
And I once had a conversation with a woman that, and she said, well, what I don't understand is why didn't my daughter get in such and such university, but they let those uh, black kids in, they got like a space. And I, and I thought to myself, do you realize you're talking to a black woman? But the idea when folks think that their kids didn't get into something because they allowed a black person in is racist. It may be unintentional, but it's racist because what you're doing in that moment is saying that that kid doesn't belong there. Only right. white kids do, which happens to be a tenet of critical race theory. Because critical race theory, one of the tenets is whiteness as property. Who gets to own? Who gets to possess? Which is why in this country, when we look at the history of racism, we look at things like land ownership. Who gets to own land? Who gets to buy a home? If we look at our country right now, and if I want to buy a house and I walk in to get a loan and you walk in to get a loan, my interest rate will be higher. I hope you're enjoying the Mankind Podcast. The Mankind Project supports all kinds of men with men's groups and programs aimed at building self-awareness, improving relationships, and upping your game. If you're willing to take the next step and you're a man of color, check out the men's work for BIPOC men. Find out more in the show notes. These are the things that happen. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about that, that's a systemic one, the mm -hmm. long one. But it's an individual one when people decide, well, you're, you got in because of affirmative action. I have somebody who used to be a, I, I would consider a friend. I can remember I got selected to be on a committee once and she didn't get selected. And she said, oh, they probably needed you because you're a black woman. And I thought to myself, hmm, wonder if me having a PhD and actually two master's degrees at the time, I didn't have my third one. And I don't say that to be boastful. I say that to say I am an educated woman with mm. a brain to think. Could it be possible that they wanted me for some other reason? And even if I didn't have a PhD, even if I had an eighth grade education, maybe there's something I had to contribute to that conversation. And it wasn't just because I'm black. But if they chose me because I'm black, good for them. Because that means that they recognize that there needs to be diversity on that committee. And that's the problem of racism. There you go. Thank you. So there's a distinction in their discernment in there around the difference between conversations about equality and conversations about equity, right? Mm -hmm. So the equity move is to make choices to bring more equity consciously into our systems. Yeah. Yes. So what your audience can't see is you laughing at me when I'm in my mode, not laughing at me, maybe laughing with me. With but, being you know, with you, you're, yes. You're like, you're like chuckling over there because I get so excited about it. I, I, I get excited about it yes. because, one, there needs to be a change in this country. But two, mm. it is so important for me to motivate people, particularly white people, to know that you can do this work. 
you are capable. In fact, you need to use your privilege mm -hmm. to change the systems and you can do it. Now, you may not be able to do it by yourself. That's why I'm here is to help people to do that or get someone else. It doesn't have to be me. But invest in the work. That's what going back to your sacred motive is about to say, how much do I really want to invest in doing this? Because this is a long process. It's a yes. hard process and you can't get in it and say, you know, I I'm going to do this and then stop when you get two weeks down the line or even six months or a year. This is a lifelong commitment because the issue is once you see racism, you can't unsee it. You just can't. And so it takes being connected with someone who can help you to see the ways in which racism shows up yes. on a daily basis. And if you're not connected with anybody, of course, it's an overwhelming mindset to say, I can't do this. But as I say in the book, you have to condition yourself to believe that you indeed can contribute to ending racism. We're going to circle back to the conditioned and unconditioned. And I wanted to stick with in Mankind Project. One of the things that I've heard said a lot is right, bright light, dark shadow. So it takes someone shining a light on me, on my behaviors, on the things that I do, the impacts that I have, the choices that I make to cast the shadow that I can then turn around and look at and say, oh, yeah. Mm. there's that shit. Mm. There's that stuff that I need to look at. So that kind of this, we're approaching the shared, right? Mm. We're approaching the shared responsibility. Right. But I think that that is that kind of selfish thing because it's taken. Yeah. You and I've, you and I've talked about, so I'm an adoptive dad and we're in a multiracial family and People say, oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. That's da, 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 da. you've done this. You've done that. It's all this. It's all that. And, and wow, there's an assumption that I'm somehow beyond racist beliefs, racist systems, racist stuff. But that's like the opposite of what's true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because you don't know what you don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can't raise a black child the same way that you raise a white child. It's it's it, totally. It, it, yeah. But, but here, I want to go back to something that you said. Yeah. Because when people make a statement that that's beautiful, that you've done that. Yes. Because Good. you're a white person. We hit this too. Yes. A, a, a black kid. What the heck? What? Why is that? Why is that so beautiful? It may be beautiful for other reasons, but it's really like saying, oh, bless your heart. Bless your hearts. Those poor little, those poor little black kids. They needed a white person to come through and to save them. And there's a, such a fine line between the beautiful acknowledgement of the truth of the hard work and savior complex being projected exactly. onto white and folk. And quite frankly, yeah. maybe you needed to adopt those kids for you because maybe those kids are saving you from something that you don't even know. Don't hell, get me started talking about that piece of it. But hell yes. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's hell the yes. assumptions that we make, the statements yes. that people make to you, because they don't know the circumstances. That's right. For your beautiful children to have come to you, right? Right. Maybe it, and and people say the craziest thing to adoptive parents. Now I want to say something. 
Right. You were there. You were in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh So I want to say something about what you're saying in terms of it, whether it makes you racist or not racist to adopt. Just because people have a black partner, Mm -hmm. black children, all of that does not make you uh, not racist. It, It makes you open and it makes you expansive. Maybe like you don't know what you don't know. Like That's you don't right. know if you're making a statement that is racist. You know, I, I have a biracial uh, niece and when she was little, her grandmother, her white grandmother said to her uh, things like she got some chocolate on her face. Oh no, you're making her more black or something. She said to the mom, like that's a racist statement for you to make to her. So what happens is kids who grow up in uh, multiracial families mm-hmm. where you don't talk about race at all, mm-hmm. those statements are made and kids and kids don't feel free to even come home That's right. and tell their parents when they experience something racist. Because if the parents don't act as if it's an issue right. and that love is love, kids don't feel comfortable. Don't feel safe. Don't feel safe. Yes. They don't get real. You have a they kid who's going to tell you what they need to tell you. I mean, we don't always want to hear what our kids have to say. I can tell you that. But thank God, my kids are going to, they're going to let me know when something's going on. And that's they will right. call me out on my stuff. And that's, that's the right. kind of relationship you have with your kids. If you are listening to this show and you have, kid of color you you know and you haven't had a race conversation with them you are doing them an injustice and that's about you and not wanting to confront your own racism or your own racial uh privilege yes i want people to understand that when we say racism because i know listeners are like why is she calling all us racist all right what i'm asking you to do is to confront, these systems are built into us. And one of the things I know from my work that I do with white people, I do a lot of private work in classes. White people don't want to be called, one of the biggest fears is to be called a racist. Yes. You got to move beyond that. Yes. Don't worry about what people are going to call you. I don't worry if somebody's going to call me a name. They might call me that, but I don't have to, I don't, have to respond to that. I have to, I have to take a look at myself and how do I want to be and show up in the world. So if someone says to you, that was a racist statement, deal with it. Yeah. And don't start the next thing out of your mouth with, but <laughs> yeah. Cause that means you're not listening. To it. Yes. That's, Race is a daily topic of conversation in our household. Mm -hmm. And that's, and being a parent in a a multiracial household hasn't dismissed me from the thoughts of being racist. It has made me keenly aware of how deeply Mm -hmm. racist belief systems are embedded even in me. Well, and here's what I want to say to you. While I believe that black people can be prejudiced and not necessarily racist because of the power structure. I do believe we have internalized racism. 
for sure. Where we hate ourselves. Yes. Or we hate a different group of people, even within our own. Uh, so like blacks, the blacks in the um, city, not like in the blacks in the suburbs and that sort of thing. Right. Because yes. we're all trying to navigate whiteness. The yes. system of whiteness. We're all trying. To, and so, oh, you need to speak better. Don't use Ebonics. Dress this way. Bleach your skin. Right? Do you know bleach, the bleaching products, it's a billion dollar industry. Why? Because folks are trying to get closer to white. So yes. this stuff is messed up. So the, the, the work that I do, while I do a lot of work with white people, there's the work that we have to do as well. And that we can, I believe, with real love and heart and connection to that sacred motive and sacred intelligence, right? We can actually do it alongside of each other exactly. in pretty important ways. When, when I'm able to let go of my own fragility and my own sensitivity and my own unconditioned responses to things and defensiveness and all of that stuff. Right. And also let go of, let go of, and this is so for other white guys out there, the shame and guilt and like all that. So like, that also doesn't serve, right? Being stuck in a stew of toxic shame about who mm-hmm. I am also doesn't serve my kids or serve me or serve dismantling racism. One of the things I do when I, I, I teach and I talk to people about shame is I also invite people to go back and look at the history mm-hmm. of this country, which we don't like to do. So maybe it was your ancestor, your direct ancestor, or maybe it was just another white uh, individual from the past. And look at the ones who decided that they were going to stand up. Not every white person who has come through this earthly realm has been about keeping black people at the bottom. Mm. There have been white people who fought to end slavery. There have been white people who fought in the civil rights movement There've been white people who stood up and said, no. I think about Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges was the little girl who went to a segregated school where white people decided, this is is how racism is damaging to all of us, right? They took their kids out of school for a year to keep them from going to school with a black kid. How incredulous is that? that you're willing to take your kids out of school for a year to do that. That's the first thing. But what? take a look at what happened here. A white teacher stood up. This is one person. Mm. She stood up and said, I will teach her. Do you think that she wasn't um, ostracized? Good. But Thank she you, decided yeah. that it was worth it for her to be on the right side of history. So I want to invite your listeners to say, this goes back to the sacred motive. What side of history do you want to be on? What do you want to tell your children and your grandchildren about the ways in which you decided that 2020 was enough? 
mm. of seeing black men and black women killed. Don't you want to say I did more than get involved in 2020, but I decided that I was going to make this a commitment. And I want folks to understand that it doesn't, you know, you don't have to be out here protesting every day. You don't have to do like I did and start a radio show. That's not maybe what your gift is or your calling, but what can you do in your own corner of the world? What can you do in your business? What can you do in your church? Can you say if you're in church, hey, look, we need to start having more book discussions mm. about race so we can understand it. We need to invite people in to talk. Or are we reaching out to other communities and inviting them into the church? Beyond church, what about your clubs? I'm amazed sometimes when I go driving through certain neighborhoods in New England and white people are just walking through and, you know, seemingly without a care in the world, but they, a different care than I might have. Right. But I look around and I think in these predominantly white neighborhoods that they think this is just life. This is how it's supposed to be. And if a black person comes through, it's like, what, what are you doing here? You know, my daughter and I were driving through a neighborhood one day and we actually just took a wrong turn. Mm drove through this neighborhood and she saw a double rainbow and she stopped at the stop sign to, she, you know, we stopped at the stop sign. She saw it and she wanted to take a picture of it. The person came out of his house and took a picture of us because we're not supposed to be there. And so what can you do in your neighborhoods to change the way things are? And it starts with really simple questions. So from your mouth to God's ears, right? And so there's your side of the, of that encounter. Mm. And from the other side, like I'm the white guy walking out of the house, right? Mm -hmm. To take a picture of you guys. And it starts with, why do I believe that someone is not supposed to be here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And what's yeah. under, what's underneath that? Yeah. yeah. Because there's no way he would have done that if it was a white person because he would have thought they're supposed to be here. Yeah. Now somebody yeah. probably could say, well, she shouldn't have been taking a picture. Maybe it was because she was taking a picture and he didn't know if she was casing the joint. Everybody has their phone out taking pictures these days of everything. All the time. All the time. Yeah. Of and, and, and it was a moment for me to teach my daughter because she said, what is, what does he think we're going to do? We drive a nice car and blah, blah, blah. I said, it doesn't matter. Mm -mm. And I said, it's probably because we drive the, the nice car too. Because here's the thing. People assume that if you drive a certain car, well, how'd you get, how, how can you afford that car? Right? It's so deeply ingrained. It's just it, it, unbelievable. So let's talk about these unconditioned responses, right? Because this is kind of where... If that's what I was born into, if that's the belief system, if that's the hierarchy that I've been embedded in, then a lot of this stuff that's coming out is unconditioned. It, it, yes. where it, it's just like reactive. Yes. So how do we start to condition ourselves to think different in, mm. in these situations? So mm -hmm. anything on that that you want to? Well, well, yes. And so I do a whole discussion in, in the book around 
how we're conditioned in the first place, right? And it's the whole Pavlov's thing where Pavlov conditioned the dogs that they hear the sound of a bell and then he would, um, they, he conditioned them to, to salivate just by hearing the sound of the bell because he paired it with food, right? They naturally salivate to food. So if you think about their unconditioned response of a dog is to naturally salivate to, to food. So you pair it with a bell and that becomes the conditioned response that you can ring that bell, salivation happens. So for us, our unconditioned response would be around mindset. mindset. Yes. Because the yep. conditioned response around racism is that we've been conditioned to fear black people. We've been conditioned to all of those things. Yes. And, um, and the funny thing is because we've been conditioned, it's almost an automatic response. It's so one yeah. of the things that I unconscious unconscious. So we need to condition ourselves to think differently yes. about race and people in this country. So in the book, what I talk about is we need to first condition ourselves to think that it is possible for us to overcome racism. Because a part of what happens is we are in this place that is so overwhelming to think about racism. Mm -hmm. And we're mm -hmm. like, I can't do anything. I've, I said that earlier. I, I can't do anything. Who am I? I, have, I don't have a lot of power to do anything. Well, condition yourself to think differently. And so in the book, I start talking about monitoring your mindset. That's the first thing. Monitor how you think about race, how you think about um, whether you can handle it. The other thing is, I think this is really important, especially for some of your listeners who worry about, well, if I say something, I'm going to get mm -hmm. in trouble. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I Good. get in trouble at work. And if I get in trouble at work, what if I get fired at work? And if I get fired at work, I won't be able to pay my bills and blah, blah, blah. It just becomes like this, you know, overwhelming thing. What if, what if, what if? So to condition yourself to say, okay, what, what if that does happen? Then what, what are my alternatives? But, but Stop yourself from going down a rabbit hole. Mm. So after you monitor your mindset and you start to look at the ways in which you're showing up, then you have to refute that thinking. You have to use different language to say to yourself, I can dismantle racism. I will be okay if I lose my job. Because I can get another job just like I got this one. I am doing this for the greater good. There's a reason that I'm doing this. That's the refuting the negative thinking. And when you're able to apply like those positive and life-giving responses, it becomes a new conditioned response to whatever is going on. And so your automatic thoughts change when you start to refute them. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. You know, in the book, I talk about the, the unconditioned response is like, you know, rather than saying this is too overwhelming or I can't get involved because I can't handle the backlash, the conditioned response would be something like this too shall pass. The world may be in chaos, but I will rise above it. I will do my part to change the system and be no worse for the wear. 
But that's why it's all that that selfish mindset piece, what we're talking about with these conditioned responses, goes back to you better know what your motive is. Yes. Right. Know what's going to motivate you to do the self-discernment, to be a part of something shared that's mm-hmm. greater than all of us. So in as we get to the bottom of the hour here, yeah, for, you know, my listeners, our listeners out there, if you are white guys like me, white women, There are lots of things, even if you're not in a situation on a daily, regular basis where you are in community with folks of color, there are a thousand choices Mm -hmm. that I can make any given day to learn more Mm. about history, to expose myself to other cultures, to read writers who I wouldn't normally read. Right. So, I just want to say this, though. Even if you are in an all-white area, and you don't plan on changing that, you don't ever see many black people, which could be the case in some of the countries we live in, in the neighborhoods we live in. For sure. You can still do something to dismantle racism. The more you know about how systems work, so for instance, the laws, particularly during the, the crack epidemic, laws were very different for people who smoked crack than it was for people who use cocaine. Yes. Clearly a racial difference. Yes. You can look at our system even now and look at mass incarceration and see who's in jail. But rather than believing that black and brown people are in jail because we commit more crimes, look at the laws, which is where critical race theory came from in the first place. It's a legal term. Because I always feel like I have to teach a little bit while I'm doing this as well. Please, yes. So here's the thing. If you look at the laws and you live in a white area and you say that doesn't impact me, you can also write, though, to get the laws changed. The more you know, the more you're able to engage in things and you don't have to live in the same neighborhood. You don't have to even change your way of of moving in society but you can still do something. And that's what's important. Figure out who you can donate to. Figure out how you can support. Where you can. Yes. Right. But don't just throw your money at it. Be involved with what they're doing. When folks, you know, donate to, you know, like say if you're donating to our church, for instance, find out what we're doing in our church. And say, hey, we want to know what you're doing because we want to know more about the culture. Right? It's great. We had so many people who have supported us and are still supporting us as we are rebuilding our church. Yeah. But we have some who've come and had joint services with us or wanted to meet us. They didn't want to just give us a check. They were like, we want to meet you, to see you. We want to grieve with you. Yes. And in those moments, boys, and it's like soul to soul. That's all it is. We're not thinking about race in that moment. We're thinking about soul to soul connections. And that comes kind of full circle back to the beginning of the conversation, right? Like why dismantle racism so that we can have that? 
so that we can be human beings together, connected, mm. heart to heart, spirit to spirit, in yeah. communities together. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is the Reverend Dr. TLC. How serendipitous that you ended up with those particular. I know. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. So I look forward to us speaking more in the future. And thank you for hanging out with me for a little while to talk about your book. So the book is Dismantling Racism, Healing Separation from the Inside Out. It's available on Amazon or everywhere else. And it's, uh, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a church going person. I got through this book beautifully. It's a beautiful, well-crafted, wonderful book. It's not a church book. It's a book about dismantling racism from a grounded, centered, beautiful, sacred, intelligent. Thank you, and we'll see you here next time. This has been another episode of the Mankind Podcast, produced in association with the Mankind Project USA. We have been your hosts, Paul Newell, Boyson Hodgson, and myself, Brandon Clift, and we want to thank our guests, for joining us today and imparting their wisdom from their experiences in this amazing journey called life. If you want to find out more about today's guests and support them in their mission, you can find links to them in the show notes. Now, if you have found gold and insights that you believe could benefit your loved ones and those you care about, be sure to share it with them. And of course, we are always grateful for a rating and review of the show on iTunes. Now, we've got to give special thanks to our back-end team, Producer, editor, and audio ninja for the show, Michael J. Russer, and Don Huff, who takes care of our graphics and promotions and pretty much makes us look pretty. So, of course, thank you, Don. Now, above all else, we've got to thank you, the listener, because through your attention and your support, you have made it possible for us to let men all over the world know that they are not alone and that there is more than one way to be a man. And if something in this episode has touched you, then perhaps it is the call to action to get involved in men's work. With live trainings happening constantly and in-person trainings happening all over the world, the Mankind Project definitely has something for you. Now, if you've enjoyed the music in this episode and all of our episodes, be sure to check out Jim Donovan and the Sun King Warriors. I have links to them in the show notes. And lastly, just know... What it means to me to be a man is completely different than what it means for you. What it means for Paul, what it means for Boyce, and that is the beauty of this journey. So if you are looking for guidance, support, and community as you begin to unpack and dive deeper into your men's work journey, then you know where to find us. Same place, same time, next week. Lots of love. We'll see you then.